It's wonderful to be with you this morning. I've often thought this week, especially in uh, thinking about coming to you this morning to relay the Word of God, thinking about the word gospel. Have you ever really thought about the word? I mean, have you ever really considered it or just, is it something that just flies up your lips without even really a thought? Without even a single second thought about what you're saying or what it means? Does the word become meaningless to you? Sometimes it becomes trite. Sometimes it becomes trivial. Sometimes it becomes something that doesn't really have any meaning at all. I know for me it has at times. You grow up, uh, you have many, many years to spend thinking about it. Uh, You know, I was saved at 14 years old, and I've had at this point 14 years to sit and think about that word, to ponder it, to consider its meaning. Um, But oftentimes, you know, you grow up in a uh, a church culture, a culture which really um, sometimes it becomes nothing more than a bumper sticker. Nothing more than idle chatter. Nothing more than part of the day-to-day experience of life. And that's not the way that it should be. Because contained within the word gospel is the word good news. Contained within the word gospel is the word of life. Contained within it is that very word which God has given to us. And contained within it is the fact that his word was manifested to us in the revelation of his son, Jesus Christ, who came into the world, who, as John says, he tabernacled with us. He was made as human flesh, dwelt among us. And John says, we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Have we really considered that? The fact that he came into the world to die The fact that he came into a world which owed him everything. He had a right to all things. He had a right to glory. He had a right to power. He had a right to majesty. He had a right to come into the world not as a lowly servant, but rather as a conquering king. He had a right to come in with power, glory, and might, and to force the hands of every single person, force every knee to bow, and force every tongue to confess that he was Lord, even at the very beginning. He had that right. But the incredible thing about it is the fact that he surrendered that right. He laid that right aside. He came to a world which... He deserved praise from, but they did not give him praise. Rather, they they mocked him. They scourged him. Rather, they beat him. Rather, they killed him. This is where we're coming to in in the book of Mark. We've been trekking a long time at this point, and we are coming into that period where we begin to see the full fruition of Christ's reason for coming into the world, the full fruition of that for which he came to die for. We see that he has time and again warned his disciples, this is coming. And now he is talking to the religious elite. We saw the fact that they questioned his authority. How can you do these things? Not realizing who they spoke to. Not realizing that no creature formed from the dust ever had a right to ask him that. 
by what authority do you do these things? By all authority he does these things because he is the Christ, because he is the Son, because he is the second person of the Trinity, because he is as to his nature and deity God. He is Yahweh, the Eternal One. That is by what authority he does this thing. But the passage we're coming to this morning is a continuation of that which we saw last week, which is the parable of the vineyard owner. If you wish to turn in your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Again, that is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And if you would, if you are able, please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. The Gospel of Mark records. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent them another servant. And at him, they threw stones, wounded him in his head and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another and him they killed and many others beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers couldn't set among themselves. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, he has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We know the hour has come for your word to go forth, Lord. I pray that it will be effective this morning. We know that it is quicker and more powerful than any two-edged, two-edged sword, Lord. We know that it cuts to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart, Lord. Uh, is dividing even the spirit, dividing joint and marrow. We know that your word is truth, Lord. We know it is life. We know in it is a testimony of your son, Jesus Christ, who we know is the resurrection and the life. And Lord, now may we at this time consider the words of your Lord, of our Lord, of Jesus Christ, as he ministers to us through these words, Lord, through the inspired word of your gospel writer, so that we can consider the things that are contained therein, Lord, so that we can consider the son this morning. So we can consider his loveliness, we can consider his power, his goodness, his grace, his mercy. Can consider the fact that though the world did not receive him, though he came unto his own, his own received him not, but cast him out or killed him. Yet you have 
set your king upon your holy hill in Zion. We know that the stone which the builders rejected has truly become the chief cornerstone, Lord. And may we consider and submit ourselves to that cornerstone now. These things we ask in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So some background for the passage. In the previous passage in Mark eleven twenty seven, it said it was said there that there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The scriptures records this occurred as Jesus once again entered into the temple. These men were the men of privilege and importance in the temple, the priests having the highest part of the Levitical order, the ones who were charged to make offerings and sacrifices to God, and acting as intermediaries on behalf of the people. Then there were the scribes the interpreters of the law, the men who were charged with knowing and reading the law of God and relaying and interpreting its meaning in the temple. And also came the elders of the tribes, the men who were charged to be the leading men in everyday affairs of Israel. Representatives of all these groups came to Christ and challenged him, saying, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee the authority to do these things? The things which they referred to, we have seen, were his acts of overturning the tables of the money changers. Jesus had disrupted their economic affairs, and they were upset about it. A well-oiled, money-making enterprise built on the back of religious devotion, and the prayers of many had taken shape in Israel. And these men were men who were being made rich over it. It is an age-old story that of the wicked and nefarious influences that the love of money produces in the hearts of men. It was this very thing that Paul put his finger on in accusation when he wrote in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It was this which first began to galvanize the upstart Martin Luther to protest in the 16th century when the popes were building palaces and massive basilicas on the money gathered in the name of religion. Money gained from indulgences, the selling of penance for souls in purgatory. It was the now infamous saying of the German monk Tetzel who went around collecting these things and he often said, a penny from the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That abuse was something which spurred Martin Luther and galvanized him to a revolution. But there is this continuation of these abuses in the modern day, where a proliferation of con artists and snake oil salesmen have reared their heads in the name of making money in the name of religion. With such names as Schuller and Osteen, Duplantis and Copeland and countless others we cannot even begin to name. There has always been a tendency of wicked men to gravitate towards using and abusing others in the name of religion for the sake of gaining money, for the sake of gaining power, for the sake of gaining control. It was no wonder then that these men who made their fortunes off of fleecing otherwise sincere and faithfully devoted people saw an existential threat to their operations in Jesus and sought to put a stop to it. But as we saw last week, they couldn't answer him. 
They couldn't overcome him in a battle of words. And it will also become clear that they also couldn't overcome him by force, at least now, for as much as they hated Christ, much more than that, they feared the people and what they could do to them. It is at this point that Christ issues a word of condemnation upon them. Christ does so, as he was known to do, by speaking to them a parable. In Mark 12, 1, it records, And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, and set a hedge about it, and digged a place for a wine vat, and built a tower, and let it out to vine dressers, and went into a far country. Mark 12 continues the account we saw at the end of Mark 11. The audience he is speaking to has not changed. He is still talking to the priests, the scribes, and the elders that had challenged his authority. When they were unable to answer his challenge and return to theirs, Christ then proceeded to upbraid them by using a parable. While many of Christ's parables that he spoke were often hidden from the people and required further interpretation to his disciples, I think it is important for us to understand here that the meaning of this parable was in no way lost upon the men who heard it that day. This was not a secret parable. This was not a parable that was unknown to them. This was meant to be understood clearly by those who heard him. This was meant to be a rebuke upon them, and they heard Christ's intentions loud and clear. He tells a story of a man who planted a vineyard. Now, I suspect many of us may not grasp the full implications of that single verse, but I hope that we can come to understand it. The Jews who heard Christ knew exactly what he was saying when he spoke these words. We might just see a vineyard, but the men who heard Christ that day heard and saw the arrow pointed straight towards themselves. If you would, turn with me, and we will consider Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 5 records, beginning in verse 1, Now let me sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its walls, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. The parable of the vineyard we see in Isaiah 5 is a rebuke of Judah. The one who is speaking here 
is the Lord himself by the prophet Isaiah. And what he says is not easy words for anyone who would have been in Jerusalem and Judah in that day to hear. It's not a pleasant message that Isaiah is bringing. And there's no wonder then that so oftentimes the prophets were hated for what they said. The Lord was very displeased with a disobedient people. The story related is a parable, but this is a parable given by God himself. He tells it in it of his labors for the people of Judah and Jerusalem. In verses 1 and 2, he says, My well-beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and he gathered out the stones thereof. And he planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. The labors of the well-beloved in this passage symbolize the labors of the Lord himself for the people of Israel. What the Lord is saying to Judah is, look at what I have done on your behalf. I planted you here in this place. I gave you this land. I delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. I brought you into the land and allowed you to conquer it from the Canaanites. I gave it into your hand. I sheltered you, protected you, and loved you. I saved you again and again. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptian, the Assyrian, and the Babylonian. And in response, all that I have received is only disobedience and unfaithfulness. I expected good grapes, says the Lord, but you instead gave me wild grapes. I expected your obedience, and instead you turned on me at every turn to your idols and to your false worship and to your sacred groves. Now the Lord here reasons directly with his people by the prophet saying, in verses 3 and 4, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. What more could they have asked of him? This is a response to those in Isaiah's day who doubted God, who accused God of neglecting and abandoning his people. To these remarks, there is one response. What more could I have done, says the Lord? I gave you everything. I planted you in this place. I prepared the place for you. I dug the rocks out. I built the tower. I put the hedge around it. I watered you. I cared for you. I tended to you. At every point, the Lord has done everything. And yet, in response, all he has received is wild grapes. Because of this, it is no doubt that when the priests and the scribes heard Jesus tell a parable of a vine dresser who prepared a vineyard, they knew the subject of his parable. It was a story about them. It was a story about Israel. And it was not a flattering picture. It says that when the man in the story plants his vineyard and prepared it, he left for a far country and left it in the care of husbandmen or vine dressers. This is a picture of God himself, who when he had finished with the house of Israel, left it in the care of his own vine dressers. Who were these men? The priests and the scribes 
and the elders. These were men who were given the task of keeping watch over the vineyard to protect it for their master. But that is not what they have done. In verses 2 and 3 it says, And at the season he sent to the vine dressers a servant, that he might receive from the vine dressers the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. What Jesus says about the religious elite in Israel is scathing in its content. The Lord had prepared the nation for them and had delivered them and protected them. In return, they had refused to obey God, but instead rebelled and harassed and injured his messengers, the prophets. And again, he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. The long history of Israel is the long history of continual reaching out by God to his people and consistently time and again the people refuse to hear, refuse to listen, refuse to bow the knee to God, but instead rather than turning with a heart of repentance when they heard the prophets so many times they gnashed their teeth, they reviled against them and they sought to kill them and they beat them, and they scourged them, and they wounded them. The parable reflects here the story of all the prophets. Since the days of Moses, God had sent prophets to the people, seeking to call them to repentance. Time after time, the people refused to listen, and often the prophets suffered horribly. All were largely hated. Many were outcasts and suffered ridicule and harassment. Others suffered torture, even death. The consistent response to the words of the prophets by the people was to resist and to lay hands upon and silence the prophets who spoke them. Now the descendants of this stiff-necked people that slew the prophets responded in same manner to the perfect manifestation of the word of God, the Son. Christ accused them of such in Luke 11. Word is recorded in verses 46 through 48. And he said, Woe unto you also, you lawyers, for you laid men with burdens grievous to be born, and you yourselves touched not the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe unto you, for you build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly you bear witness that you allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you rebuild their sepulchres. Christ condemned the scribes and the Pharisees of his day because they pretended to reverence the prophets while at the same time their fathers killed them and they in turn rebelled against the words of the greatest prophet, Jesus Christ himself. Though they said they reverenced the prophets and built their tombs, they would not hear them. They would not listen. Jesus here further explains the meaning of that which we see in the parable in Mark 12 when he says to the Pharisees, in Luke 11, 20, 49 through 51. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundations of the world, may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. 
Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Time and again, the Lord sent the people prophets. And some of them should be persecuted. However, though the generation that heard Christ did not themselves slay the prophets because they were not sent any prophet, save John the Baptist, it was not any other prophet that they were dealing with, but rather they were given the Son himself, the incarnate God in human flesh. They had Emmanuel, God with them. They had the perfect one, from whom was derived all truth, and who was as to his very nature truth. They had God himself relay these words to them, and they, rather than hearing him, rejected him and would ultimately kill him. Therefore, they would be guilty of all the blood of the prophets, as Christ would ultimately say of them. From the foundation of the world, the word says that they would be held guilty for the blood of every prophet, from the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. So every prophet, from righteous Abel, who died at the hand of his brother Cain, when he first took a human life, unto the very last prophet of the Old Testament period, Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, of whom it is recorded in Second Chronicles 24, 20. And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye can, cannot prosper? Because ye have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. Because of the words of Zechariah, displeased King Joash, and his, at his bidding, the people stone Zechariah in the temple court. And the word says, And they conspired against him and stoned him with stones at the commandment of the king in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, according to Jesus, the generation that heard him and would not listen would be guilty of the death of every prophet from Genesis to Chronicles, from the first book of the Tanakh to the last. The reason for their harsh judgment being that they had the witness and testimony of the Son and would not hear it. It is this for, the, for this same reason that Jesus condemned the unrepentant cities of Georgian and Bethsaida when they would not hear his word, saying, Woe unto thee, Chorazin, and woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works would have been done you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted above heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Chorazin and Bethsaida would come under greater condemnation than these. The reason being they had the son and did not hear him. Capernaum would face harsher judgment even than Sodom because they had the son there in their midst and they would not hear him. And the Jews of Christ's day, that generation, would face a harsh sentence and judgment upon them because not only did they not hear the Son when they came to him, but instead they saw him and decided to kill him. As it indicates in the parable, having therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, they will reference my son. God sent his son. 
his only son, after he had sent so many prophets before him. So many prophets had come before, from Abel to Zechariah, and almost all without fail had suffered the same fate. Jeremiah was thrown in a well, and eventually later he was martyred. Isaiah was sawn in two. Ezekiel, Amos, Micah were all killed in their own time. In 1 Kings 18.4, it is recorded that wicked queen Jezebel killed an untold number of the Lord's prophets. But all this paled in comparison to what was to come. For after these things, the Lord chose to send his son into the world after them. The Lord sent him, and the people, when they should have bowed and worshipped him, instead rose up to kill him. The parable continues, but those husbandmen that saw themselves, saw, said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Because this generation heard the message of Christ and were witnesses of the word made flesh, they were faced with a swift and certain judgment. Because these religious leaders had abused the sacred things of God and polluted them for the sake of money, and because they, because they, when they were confronted by God in human flesh, rose up against him rather than choosing to repent, their fate was sealed. As Christ says to them, What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen, and he will give the vineyard unto others. This is not to say that everyone who heard him were doomed in a, in a soteriological sense. No doubt some of those that heard would indeed later repent. Some would repent later at the preaching of Peter at Pentecost when he preached in Acts 2, 36-38. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This was a fulfillment of the words of Christ as recorded by Luke in Luke 23, 34, when he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we know that there were some of those that, of that generation, the generation of Christ, even those that crucified him, that repented. These, in spite of their rebellion against him, have had their part in eternal life. But the generation of Christ was told that they would be removed, and the vineyard which had been entrusted to them would be given to another. I would argue, and this may be controversial to some, but this was indeed, I would say, a fulfillment that was accomplished in that generation. Some seek to spiritualize or abstract the phrase generation, but I will contend this morning that Jesus truly meant that generation in a normal sense. Those that were alive at that time would experience this judgment. The mantle which had been given to Israel at the church of the Old Covenant was to be removed from the hands of their rulers and instead given to others, those others being the church of the New Testament era. This, I will contend, is consistent with the words of Christ, not only in his pronouncement of judgment upon the rulers of Israel. The parable here is spoken to the priests, scribes, and elders who were the established religious and civil leadership of the Old Covenant, and thus certifying that their rule was coming to an end. 
the abuses of these men and their refusal to see the greater testament the Lord could give them, that the Word made flesh, made it certain that this would take place, as Christ indicated by His words in Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 38. He weeps over them and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The woes here pronounced followed upon a lengthy argument by Christ against the Pharisees and the spiritual rulers of his day. He chided them for their hypocrisy, for their trappings of religion, and for their abuse of the things of God for their own personal gain. Jesus turned to the crowd at that time, even as the Pharisees, Pharisees criticized him. And he said in verse chapter 23, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places in the feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marking place, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren." Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These religious leaders had built a monument of idolatry and falsehood upon the true things of Christ upon the true things of God. And they abused others in the name of religion. And they were condemned for their hypocrisy, for their abuse of others, for their own advancement and gain, for the fact that they loved the crowd. They loved to be greeted in the marketplace. They loved the best seats at the feast. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. They loved to have all the best things. Their love was the love for the things of this world. Their love was the praise of men. It was not for the things of God. And whether they knew it or not, regardless of how sincere they were or not, they abused others. They spiritually abused others in the pursuit of the things which they loved. And these are the things which Christ condemns as keeping the children of Jerusalem from being gathered together by Christ. They have refused to allow it to happen. They resisted at every turn. Therefore, Christ says, their house will be laid desolate. As it says in Mark 12, 11, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Matthew at this point adds, therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And is condemning them, he promises that the kingdom of God shall be taken from them and given to another. It is important here to consider the fact that it is not possible 
this could be true unless they did not already in some way possess it. That, it, that cannot be taken from them if they do not possess it. But in what way did they possess it? Going back to Matthew 23, the answer is given because they sit in Moses' seat. And where is Moses' seat? The seat in view here is the temple in the Holy of Holies. The tabernacle of God was their possession, and as such, they had some authority because of it. They at that time possessed it, but that was very soon to change. History records in great detail, and thankfully we have the recordings of the former Pharisee and the later Roman historian Flavius Josephus, who records for us in great detail what happened. In AD 73, the temple was destroyed, along with Jerusalem itself, after the Jews rebelled against the Roman Empire. The Roman general and later emperor Vespasian laid siege to Jerusalem until the cities were brought past the point of utter starvation. Once it collapsed, the city was laid, laid, laid waste and the temple was burned, destroyed utterly. And to this day, it has not been rebuilt. These events were thoroughly recorded by Josephus. They were also copied by the church historian Eusebius, who if you take a look at his account, he seems almost to revel in the fact that the Jews suffered at the hand of Vespasian. And I would say this, that has been a common thing throughout the ages when it comes to the Christian response to these things, is to look at the Jews and despise them because of what they did. I would say that has in no way at any point been appropriate or correct, the right response. It's been common, yes. But the fact is, and I would contend this heartily, any of us would have done what the Jews did apart from the grace of God. Any of us would have done exactly the same thing if it was not for God's grace and mercy on our behalf. I think that is purely the case. So I say that in saying this, there is at no point, any point, in which the Jewish people themselves should be blamed for the death of Christ. I hate to have to say that, but you know it does actually come up here and every now and again, anti-Semitism. But I think it's very important for us to remember, it is not their responsibility. It is, in fact, our, all of our responsibility that Christ should ultimately die. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. The Jewish leaders rejected Christ and crucified him. Yet Christ would endure, and the church which he built would not only survive, but it would thrive. And the very ones who reject him, Christ would grind into powder. Their destruction was total. The kingdom which had once been theirs was taken away and given to another. So these things being said, I think it's also important that what is kept in focus in these passages is that while there is an aspect of condemnation here upon the religious leaders of Israel and the destruction of the political and religious entity that existed at the time was made certain, there was an important fact which remained, that God had reserved for himself a people. It is important to remember that the scribes and the elders that heard Jesus and were condemned by Jesus for their hypocrisy, believed ultimately that they possessed stature with God, not based upon God's grace, but on their stature as his chosen people. Yet it was John the Baptist who had warned them that it was not their lineage 
that was ultimately the most important thing. They thought their position as children of Abraham set them apart, but John tells us that God can raise up stones and make children unto Abraham. It is more important, not that you are one of Abraham's physical offspring, but that you are his spiritual offspring, and that you have entered in as Abraham did. For the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. This was what was truly astounding to Nicodemus, who was one of these Jewish leaders, but one who came to Jesus in sincerity, honestly wanting and seeking after the truth. We consider Christ's words to him, looking at John 3, beginning in verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one hath ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And following on comes one of the most famous passages and all famous verses in all of the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus pointed out to Nicodemus that it is he which is born of water and spirit that truly has a part in God's eternal inheritance. And this inheritance, contrary to the thinking of the Jewish leadership of the day, was not restricted or kept from the world. The Gentiles were not excluded from this, but were brought in. Not only were they brought in, but they often came in droves where those who were Abraham's physical offspring stumbled at the stumbling tone. The Gentiles came, and yet so many of the Jews, Paul asserts, did not. Paul laments this very fact. We heard that this morning in Romans chapter 11, the fact that so many had stumbled at the stumbling stone. So many had not been given eyes to see and ears to hear. But with that fact in mind, that in no way is a means of boasting on behalf of the Gentiles. Rather, Paul asserts, the Gentiles should fear and be grateful that he was grafted in. in Romans eleven eighteen through 21, boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. One of the greatest things I think we can take away from this personally is simply this. Be careful. Be careful lest you become conceited in your own spirituality, in your own spiritual security. If God did not spare the natural branches because of unbelief, how then will he treat you if you exhibit the same evil heart of unbelief within yourself. So therefore, fear and let the godly fear lead to repentance and the trusting in the word of God. 
And let it be a source of gratitude for you because of this fact. It is not because of your own merit that you are here this morning. If you are in Christ today, merit is not at issue this morning when it comes to the kingdom of God. It was not merit which made God choose Israel in the first place. Consider with me the words that the Lord said to his people by the prophet Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In a similar manner, it is not for anything in the wild olive branch that he grafted it in while the natural branches were broken off. Rather, it is that God set his love upon a people and sought them out and brought them in when they had no right to it in the first place. It was not merit which brought the people of God first to him. It was God's love and God's promise. And it was not, the, and it was not anything within the people that has brought us into this place today, brought us into the kingdom if we are in him. It is simply, completely, and totally his love and his faithfulness, and his mercy, and his grace. There's, there's nothing else. There's no distinguishing mark. There's nothing else that distinguishes us between those that are outside. But rather it stands, as Paul says, Romans 1.16, in, in such blessed terms, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the very power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I think we often lose sight of how beautiful a fact that is because at one time there were those who, even in the early church, thought that the Greek should be excluded. The Greek should be left out. There were those, even in Christ's day, who said that the Greek should be left out. And I am thankful for the fact, and I think we should all be thankful for the fact, that God set his love on the nations. God set his love on a people of every nation tribe and tongue. God set himself, his love upon a people that encompasses the whole of the earth. And that is probably one of the most beautiful facts about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I praise the God who has brought to himself a people from every nation in the earth. I praise the fact that even this morning, even this day, gathered all around the world are people of every ethnicity every race, every tribe, every color, speaking in every language that has ever been spoken on the face of the earth, almost every one of them. There's still a few people that are in reach, but not many. The fact that that is happening is incredible beyond any words. The fact that he has called out a people from every part of the earth is a beautiful thing. The fact that the wild olive branch was grafted in but there's nothing there for boasting. There's nothing there to boast in. Rather, only to wonder at the mercy and the grace of our Lord. 
I think this is truly reflected in the fact of what Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised. God hath chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And so I think we need to consider that this morning. Let he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. It is not a testament to us that we are in Christ this morning. There is nothing that distinguishes us from those that are outside of him. And the fact is, we can't come and think, well, God must have really needed me because of this or because that, because I can offer this or I bring this to the table because I'm such a great guy, because I'm so righteous, because I'm so intelligent, because I'm so influential, because I have so much power or influence in my community, in my nation, in this or that. That's not the reason God chooses people. Rather, it's often the opposite. God doesn't choose the wise, he chooses the fools. God doesn't choose the strong, he chooses the weak. God doesn't choose the powerful, he chooses the powerless, the victims. God chooses the despised things of this world. He chooses the loathsome things of this world. He chooses the things that are nothing so that he can bring to nothing the things that are something. He chooses to do this because, as it says, let he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord and in the Lord alone. If it was anything in our own merit, we'd have something to boast and say, this is the reason I've, I'm here. This is the reason I have salvation, because of this or that reason. Because I'm smarter, because I'm better, because I'm more righteous, because of this reason or that reason. And the truth is, it is none of that. It is not any of that. If you are in Christ this morning, the reason you are in Christ is because of the fact that he loved you and gave himself for you. So that you can say as Paul, I am crucified with Christ and yet I live, and yet it is not I that live, but Christ that lives within me. That is the reason. So where then is boasting? As Paul says in Romans, it is, it's, it's excluded. No, rather the only thing that can anyone boast in is in the glory of the Lord. More so in the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, who was delivered into lawless hands, that it was fulfilled what Peter declared at Pentecost in Acts 2, 23-24. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified him and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden to it. Truly the greatest thing we can boast in is in fact him. Did wicked men who stoned the prophets, raise up their hands to slay him? Yes. 
Was it all according to the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God? Absolutely. And yet at the same time, are those who killed him responsible because they killed the Son of God? Yes, it is so. And yes, it's true, my beloved was slain upon a cross. Yes, they put the hairs of his beard. Yes, they beat and scourged him beyond recognition. Yes, they threw him out of the vineyard. They threw him outside of the camp. And they made him to be an offering for sin. They did not know it. They did not recognize it. But that is exactly what they did. It was fulfilled what Christ said to Nicodemus in John three fourteen. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. As black a thing as it is, they did to my Lord, to my Jesus. And as much as I hate the act that was done by these men in ignorance, I yet must in some way, somehow, love this dark and evil thing, for by it I live. By it I am grafted in. By it, I, who was afar off, have life and have been made a son of the promise, even though I in no way deserve any of it, even though I know I have no right to it because it is not mine. I am not a son of Abraham, not in the physical sense. I don't have that right Nor do I have any righteousness or stature before God. I have nothing I can bring to him this morning. And you too, if you were in him, must recognize that fact. And if, even if you are not in him, and I hope if you are not in him, then hear me out this morning. Hear me, I pray. If you do not know Christ today, recognize the fact that nothing that you do Nothing that you can offer, nothing that you are doing to try to earn your way into heaven is ever going to work. It is never going to accomplish what you are hoping to accomplish. You can try and you can try and you can try. It will always fail. You can try to clean up your life on your own. It will not work. You can try to make some kind of some kind of reconciliation in yourself, it's not going to happen. You can turn over a new leaf, but the other side of the leaf will just be as dirty as the one before. It's not going to happen in yourself. And maybe you don't even care about spiritual things. Maybe you're not really concerned about these things, but I would encourage you to take heed. Because one thing you must recognize is that the offering and the sacrifice of my Jesus is not something anyone on this earth can ignore. It is not something that anyone can ignore and be held blameless. You will be, you will be judged and you'll be judged harshly for passing over and ignoring the Son. The people of Israel suffered because they passed over and ignored the Son. Do not make that mistake. Do not pass him by. We saw a few weeks ago in Abraham, the story of Abraham in chapter 18, the fact that when he walked out, he was sitting by the tent and he looked out and he saw three men and he said, my lords, please don't pass me by. 
because he knew if they pass by, there may not be another coming. The Lord is not obligated to strive with the soul of man forever. He is not obligated to strive with men's souls for eternity. And you can resist, and maybe there will come another day, but then again, maybe there will not. And when the final, when the final moment comes, when the hammer finally drops, when the shoe finally falls, when your life ends, and you go into eternity without knowing him, without having a relationship with Jesus Christ, without bowing your knee to him, and without being covered by his righteousness, it will be a great and terrible day. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because that is a terrible fate to behold. Make no mistake. So don't ignore him. Don't try to substitute something of yourself. Don't try to find another way. There is one way this morning. And the way is Jesus Christ. By him, you can be grafted in. By him, you can be part of that olive branch. By him, you can be part of a living temple where he is the chief cornerstone and each of us are gathered together as living stones upon him, as Peter would say. By him, you can have adoption. We're adopted children. Each and every one of us are adopted sons if we are part of him. We're not natural, we're not natural born sons, we're not natural born daughters. We don't have a natural right to it. All we have is the gift of an adopted father. And one the offering of our high priest and our brother. Jesus Christ. What have you done with Christ today? What have you thought about him today? Because unfortunately, the ones we've read about this morning, they did not get it. They didn't understand. They were conceited. They were trapped in their own way of thinking, and they were not going to yield. But what are you going to do? I pray you make the right decision of Christ today. I pray you choose to follow in his footsteps. I pray that you bow your knee to him, recognizing that it's not your righteousness that's going to get you anywhere. Our righteousness is filthy rags, the scripture says. And I would hope that make you despair because if you consider that if your righteousness is filthy rags, how is that ever going to atone for your sins? If your righteousness stinks to God, how can you offer anything at that point? You're hopeless. Hopeless apart from him. I pray that we think about Christ today. If we are in him, I hope we can meditate upon what he has come to do. Because I've had to sit and think, reading through these, these passages here. The fact that the scriptures record in such clarity how time and again God reached out. He reached out by the prophets over and over again. People wouldn't listen. They couldn't listen. They couldn't hear. Their eyes and their ears were darkened. 
And in ignorance, they killed the very Son of God. They killed the Messiah. Remember that this morning. Is Christ reaching out to you? Is he sending something to you? Is he sending out? Is he reaching out? Is he trying to get a hold of you? And are you listening? Are you hearing him? What will it take for him to reach you? What will it take? Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us this time to come together to this place to share your word, Lord. I pray the word has gone forth, Lord. I, I pray that it has done something, Lord. I, I don't know. You know, and you, you can do it with it what you will. I pray you forgive my weakness and my inability. Any failures are my own, but I pray that whatever good comes out of it, I know ultimately comes from you, and you will use it towards your glory and your good. Lord, we just thank you this morning for your son, Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for his graciousness, his goodness, and his glory. We thank you for the fact that he came into the world, came unto his own, and his own received him not. They didn't recognize him, rather they crucified him. They mistook him for a madman, for a charlatan, and they killed him. And in doing so, they ultimately accomplished your will and your work. Ultimately accomplished salvation for your people, Lord. A people called out by your name. Accomplished salvation for us, Lord, for me. For each person here who is yours. If there's any here that are not here, that are not um, yours, Lord, I pray that you would convict their hearts this morning, draw them unto yourself, save them, Lord, as only you are able. Show them the need for Christ so that Christ can be a lifeline for them, so that Christ can be their Savior, so that they as a wild olive branch can be grafted in. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son Jesus and what he's given on behalf of sinners like us. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen.